This is the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore. A pleasure to welcome Mary Lou Reed to the program. How are you doing, Mary Lou? I'm doing just great, Bob. How are you? Okay. Mary Lou Reed is author of the book, The Convent Diet, which is coming out later in this uh, 2017. If you go to conventdiet.com, you'll be able to uh, access information about her book and and some recipes. You might be saying, I thought this program was about history. Well, it is, because I ran into uh, Mary Lou at a publicity event down in New York City where authors and so forth kind of display their wares to the media. She was accompanied by a friend who uh, I believe is still a member of a religious order, and and I started talking to both women about the old days of convents. Not that I know a lot about convents, but over my life I've known a number of of sisters, uh, members of uh, religious orders, and Mary Lou Reed was the member of a religious order when she was young. And I would say sort of typical of people my age or about your age, Mary Lou, many uh, sisters and priests left these institutions. Yes. When I entered the convent 50 years ago, I'm telling my age, uh, there were 83 girls in our group. Our group was split between a convent, the Mother House in Iowa, and a convent in California because there were so many of us. Mm -hmm. And now I believe there are about 12 left in the group that entered with me 50 years ago. So things have changed a great deal, and I entered the convent probably at the height of the numbers, the big numbers entering. And within about two years after I entered, the numbers really started to dwindle. And I think that had a lot to do with the changes that were going on in the Catholic Church at that time. Mm -hmm. I entered really right after Vatican II, which was a huge change time in the Catholic Church. It was a time of the opening of the doors. They used the term aggiornamento, which meant Pope John XXIII was in charge, and he turned the altar around so that it faced the people. The Mass changed from Latin to English, and many other people-friendly changes happened in the Catholic Church. And what happened in terms of religious life is that caused a certain amount of turmoil. Many of us who entered, quote, in the old days, where things were as they had been for the last 50 or 100 years, suddenly were faced with a lot of changes. And those changes could be disturbing, and I think a lot of the girls uh, were affected by that. And we entered wearing the habit and following traditional rules, and before I left, we had changed the habit to street dress. In fact, we turned our black wool serge habits into black suits. Hmm. And, you know, we all had our patterns. I, of course, had to get a Vogue pattern because I wanted to have something more high fashion. So I can remember unpleating the habit and stretching it out on work tables and placing my Vogue pattern on top of the, the surge and cutting it out and making a black suit. Now, <laughs> I was good with that, um, but not everybody adapted so easily to the change. And, and I'm sure there's other reasons, sure. individual, personal reasons why people leave, which is always the case. 
Yep. So mm-hmm. I thought it might be kind of fun to talk a little bit about a day in the life of a nun 50 years ago, or specifically a day in the life of what we called a novice. Mm-hmm. 50 years and ago. A novice was uh, someone in training, a sister in training, a young sister. Mm-hmm. We received our white veils, but once we took our vows, we then changed to black veils. Well, if I could just catch up with you on some of the terminology. You had mentioned, the, I believe, the Italian word, aggiornamento, and you had told me that before when we were prepping for the show. And I gather the, uh, from the Internet that me- means kind of bringing up to date is what that yes. means in Italian. And the order of sisters, if it's correct to say that, that you're, you were a member of, are the Sisters of Charity uh, BVM, which I believe stands for Blessed Virgin Mary. Uh, this is an order that originally uh, was started by Irish women who had come to America to help immigrants in America. I don't I believe it's as well known here in New York State, although it, it may be, but it certainly is a, a big force still, right? I mean, the Sisters of Charity uh, still exist. Yes, there are over 300 sisters still here working around the world, really, today, not just the United States, but there are many convents or sisters working, sometimes not even living in convents, but more two and three in apartment life across the United States. Mm -hmm. And the work of the BVMs in my day was teaching, but that's branched out tremendously. There are lawyers, uh, teachers, of course, social workers, because the order has opened up so much, I think there are many more choices. Personal choices are more available to women to do what is the work they feel called to do. Mm-hmm. And uh, your day in the life of a, of a novice or a, or a nun uh, 50 years ago, it's an interesting thing. Why don't we uh, get going with that? What was, what was the day like? The day began with the bell ringing, and by the way, Bells called us to duties, called us to meals. There were different um, numbers of bell tones that meant different things and were heard throughout the convent. Maybe I should back up and say the convent was a large red brick building built in the 1800s, complete with turrets, just like you might picture in the movie The Nun's Story or something like that. (laughs) And also, I didn't ask you, where was this, or where were you in the Sisters of Charity? This convent was in Dubuque, Iowa, and I grew up in Minnesota, and the Sisters of Charity BVM taught at my high school, and that was my influence. And of course, St. Paul, Minnesota is just maybe an eight-hour train ride to Dubuque, or less, eight hours to Chicago, I should say, which also was a place of many BVMs, and we went to Chicago. So Dubuque, Minnesota, Chicago, a lot of BVMs teaching in the Midwest. So they were a big influence on my life. Okay. So the bells ring and you get up. We got up, and it was 5.30 in the morning, and every novice had what we called an alcove, we were in large rooms, I, I wouldn't say dorms, because dorms imply much more than we had, and each room had a saint's name, so I might have been in Sister Anne, the room Sister Anne, and inside of that room would be maybe eight or ten alcoves, 
if you picture a hospital, I hate to say this, but really in terms of the mechanics, Mm -hmm. if you picture a hospital room with the curtains drawn on the rods across the ceiling there to Mm -hmm. separate one patient from the next and to give a little bit of privacy, that's exactly what an alcove was. There might have been all these white curtains, maybe eight or ten in the room, separating the girls. And within your alcove, you had a twin bed, metal frame, pretty much like a hospital bed, and one chest, a four-drawer chest. And on top of the chest was a basin. And the night before, you went to the central washrooms and filled your basin with water. And in the morning, you were then able to wash your face and brush your teeth by using the basin water. Now, it's very important, as you might realize, to wash your face first so that you're not washing your face in toothpaste. (laughs) But um, that was how the day started. And then I might add we changed alcoves so that we didn't just get used to one space. Really? And I remember my turn in the window alcove, which was a coveted alcove because you had a window um, with shutters and you could open them up and see out instead of just having all white curtains. But the negative for me was I was in the window alcove in the winter, which meant, and it's an old building. When I woke up in the morning, my basin was half ice. Uh So I had to chip off ice in order to wash my face and brush my teeth. So anyway, with that job done, you went to the central washrooms again and dumped your basin and came back and got dressed. Now, that was a little bit tricky, too, because we didn't have mirrors. Mm -hmm. And we wore a habit that involved several headpieces that had to be assembled and a hood that had to be shaped into a point. Now, shaping that hood into a point and pinning it on without a mirror was no easy feat. And there was more than one morning that I couldn't get my hood on in the right way in time to get to chapel before it was time to be at chapel. We had 30 minutes to dress and get to chapel. Would you help each other get dressed at all? Oh, no. No, No, we were behind our white curtains. And uh, nobody saw what anybody else was doing. And I guess the plus is there was a lot of privacy and actually a lot of quiet time, organized quiet time, which really was something that I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. But I do remember one morning one of the professed sisters, now let me clarify that terminology, a professed sister is someone who has already professed vows, who has made vows. So she is certainly a more experienced sister. And the professed sister would come and look through the rooms or the dorms or whatever and make sure that all the girls were dressed and out and down in chapel. Well, of course, I was there struggling with my headdress, my hood, trying to get it pinned right. And I don't remember which sister it was, but I, I remember that it seemed like she was trying to pretend she didn't really see me but I think I caught a sort of a smile on her face as she just walked on by and didn't make any noises or admonitions about my being late because I think she could really see what my problem was and I was just going to do the best I could. So then you make it to chapel, and there's several hundred sisters, maybe two or three hundred, because there's my group of 
of novices. There's a group ahead of me and the group behind me and all the professed sisters. And everybody comes to the chapel to say morning prayers. Mm-hmm. And also in the morning is your opportunity to look around and see who's missing from your group. Because people did leave, and they seemed to, in essence, disappear. They were there during the day, and the next morning you'd say, oh, who's not here today? Because then you know that they had been taken to the train station and had gone back home again. So that was always like, oh, who left today? (laughs) As well as morning prayers, of course. Now, when you go into the prayers, I mean, can you talk to the other novices? No, there was no conversation then. We just went into our pew, a row in the chapel, said our prayers. I think the morning prayers were only about 15 minutes or so long. And after that, you had 30 minutes of meditation. And the joy of that was you could go anywhere for your meditation. You didn't have to stay in the chapel, though you could. Mm -hmm. I generally never stayed in the chapel. I either went outside and walked on the pine walk, which was a beautiful path of many pine trees. The grounds were absolutely beautiful. They sat high up on a bluff overlooking the Mississippi River. Again, just as you might imagine, an idyllic convent grounds, that's exactly what it was. So sometimes I'd walk along the pine walk because I was really tired, and it kept me awake. And other times I just headed for one of the classrooms because during the day we had school classes. I would head to one of the classrooms and maybe sort of put my head down and go to sleep. And, again, I don't know if any professed sisters came by and looked in the classroom and saw me sleeping at the desk, but nothing was ever said to me. (laughs) Now, and this is all before you've had breakfast, right? That's right. That's right. And then, uh, so then a half an hour, the bell rings again, and you're called back to the chapel. Then you have morning mass. Oh, mass too. Okay. Yeah. (laughs) Then we get to go to mass. And then after mass, you have your morning duty. Because somebody has to prepare breakfast for all these hundreds of people. So some people had kitchen duty. They got to go down and prepare Mm -hmm. breakfast for everybody. Other people might have had duties like high dusting because the building was so tall. The the rooms were so high. It was an old building. You had high dusting. You had cleaning toilets. You had sacristan. Uh, My job was priest kitchen, which meant... I went down to a smaller kitchen with a professed sister who was in charge of preparing the meals for the priests. So I helped her get breakfast ready for the priest who had just said Mass. And then, of course, another bell would ring calling us to breakfast. Okay, and I might stop you right there because breakfast does have to do probably with your book, The Convent Diet. We'll return with Mary Lou Reed in uh, just a moment. On the Historian's Podcast, the 2017 Fund Drive now underway to support the Historian's Podcast. Your donation at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historian's 2017 helps cover technical costs and other production expenses. You can also donate by mail, make a check out to Bob Cudmore, send the check to Bob Cudmore, 125 Horstman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Thank you very much for your support 
of the Historian's Podcast. We're talking with uh, Mary Lou Reed, who in uh, her life has been a financial planner. She's appeared a lot on uh, television and written articles about financial planning. But for a time in her life, she was uh, a nun. She uh, was a novice at a convent of the Sisters of Charity, BVM, the Sisters of Charity of the Blessed Virgin Mary. And she's uh, telling us about a day in the life of a nun back then, 50 years ago, when she, uh, before she left uh, the order. And uh, Mary Lou has written a book called The Convent Diet. Uh, and you're about to tell the story of, of breakfast. Um, did anything the sisters did at breakfast help you in your, in your diet? Absolutely, Bob. Breakfast and every meal was very specific in terms of portion. And we, we all know that portion control is important. So we sat at tables with 10 girls per table, and we were served with platters. There, were a plat- there was a platter at one end and the other end of the table, so there was five servings of whatever it was on each platter. And for breakfast, an example might be baked eggs. We would have five paper cups filled with an egg on each platter, and the platters were passed around and everybody took a baked egg. That is, if you liked baked eggs. Now, I was really lucky. We had baked eggs on Friday, and a lot of the girls didn't really like them. So it gave me an opportunity to have a second serving of baked eggs. Ah. And um, even two servings of baked eggs wasn't going to cause me to gain more weight. It actually helped me lose weight. But in addition to the baked eggs, we had any amount of bread that you wanted to eat because we had a bakery. And one of the duties was baking bread. So there was lots of good homemade bread, and a lot of the girls actually filled up on bread, and maybe the thin ones gained a little bit of weight, but I, of course, lost weight. So every meal, just to take an aside, every meal was set out that way, and there generally was not a second serving. And the refrigerators were locked at night, uh-huh. which meant there was no raiding the refrigerator. <laughs> okay, gotcha. But the good thing was there was always dessert. And on Sundays, we had sweet rolls. But after dinner and supper, we always had a wonderful dessert. And that's really the first principle of my book, Always Eat Dessert. Because what I learned in the convent, Bob, is that eating dessert puts an end to the meal. And even if you wanted that second helping of baked eggs or chicken and noodles, whatever they're serving, if you switch to dessert, and we had wonderful desserts because we had it orchard on the grounds. We made our own apple pie, which you could just smell through the whole convent while you cleaned your toilets upstairs. And it was served with a slice of cheese, which I had never had before. And once I finished that apple pie, I really didn't look for seconds. And what I learned in the convent was that this forced portion control gradually had me losing weight. And by the time I left the convent, five years later, that was my habit. It was a habit to eat a little bit less. Mm-hmm. And this is really the concept of what I'm sharing in my book, along with inadvertent recreation. Because maybe I should continue with, instead of going in exact order of a day, is just say, we had recreation. We had fun times. 
and recreation might be going out and playing ball. It might be hiking through the grounds and up and down the hills and through the brambles and looking at the bittersweet in season or the violets in season, led by Sister, our, our novice or postulant directress. And we didn't think of it as exercise. It was recreation. It was fun. And even if you're in the middle of a July day in the Midwest where it's 85 and humid and you're wearing a black serge habit, you forget about that because you're with other girls, really, other novices and postulants. A postulant is what you are before you're a novice. That's really when you're asking for admission to the order. Postulant yep. means basically asking asking for admission. And I've kept keep asking you about you know like breakfast or, or do you talk and so. I mean, was this an order where you didn't talk at all, or you could talk to? Oh uh, no, uh, we could talk. We did not talk at breakfast. At dinner, which was our main meal at noon, we usually had uh, we always had some spiritual reading provided by a sister or someone sitting up at the dais. There was a podium in the front or a dais and a podium. But after the spiritual reading, we had time for conversation, as I recall. I wasn't in a cloistered order. A cloistered mm-hmm. order is one that never talks. They're in, their whole w- life's work is meditation, prayer, communing with God, and that type of thing. I didn't think I could handle that. Mm-hmm. I, I think I needed to be in an order that talked yep. and an order that did work in the outside world. And also during the day, you, you talked about you know, like your duty was with the priest's breakfast and others to clean the toilets or whatever. But, I mean, did you have a, a job, like a certain thing that you did or you made something for the order? or What were you doing during the day? Oh, yes. A lot of the orders did, mainly the cloistered orders, made something. For example, there was an order down the road, and they make uh, delicious chocolates and caramels. We didn't do that. We went to school, actually. If you had not finished college, you had college classes right in the convent. Professors from the college that the sisters ran, which was Clark College in Dubuque, came over and taught regular classes. We had English and uh, math and, of course, we had scripture and that type of thing. So there was a period during the day that we actually studied. And after we completed our time at the novitiate and became professed sisters, we went to school full-time mm-hmm. until we finished our degree, and then we went out and taught. Mary Lou Reed with us, author of The Convent Diet, talking about her early years as a member of the Sisters of Charity, BVM, uh, I imagine maybe even people are waiting for me to ask, when did you leave and why? <laughs> I do get that question quite a bit. I left after five years, and by the time I left, I had completed school, had been teaching, and had mission experience, lived in convents in different cities. And I think I basically asked myself, I don't know if you recall the old Peggy Lee song, Is That All There Is? But I think that was what went through my mind. Is this really going to be my life forever? And the answer, I'm afraid, was no. And it's not that I was boy crazy, and even though when we were in the scholasticate finishing our degrees, we had a 
the the brothers were right down the road finishing their degrees, and we did have a certain camaraderie and work and fun with with the brothers. Um, But I think really I don't know that teaching was really my profession either. It turned out it wasn't. I spent 30 years as a certified financial planner. So I think it was a combination of I felt that my life was empty, and I know that sounds Maybe that sounds shallow, but it is the truth, and it is who I was. I wanted something more. Mm. So I left the order and continued to stay close to the order. As you mentioned, Sister Myra was with me when we met, and we've been friends for 50 years because we entered together. And Myra just went out of office as the vice president of the order. Mm-hmm. And I... I also stayed close when I went to New York to make my way in media and theater. The sisters put me up at the convent in New York, which was on Long Island, and allowed me to stay there till I could get on my feet in New York. And then when I was off in the summertime doing summer stock, the sisters used my apartment to come and do summer school at NYU and things like that. And somewhere along the way, you did get married. I did get married, but I waited a very long time. Okay. (laughs) I got married, we'll be married almost 10 years. So I was 59 years old when I got married. Okay. So I I didn't really leave to run out and get married, although I certainly had a lot of boyfriends. I won't deny that. All right. Now, um, you started by, by saying that you went into the order at this time of great change. Was it the change uh, in the, what the church was doing, did that impact your leaving, or did it impact the leaving of other sisters that you knew? The change impacted everybody to a greater or lesser degree. Some people, I believe, enter the order out of romance. It's it's very exotic and romantic to wear a habit and go behind the walls and live this life. And when that all changed, all the the periphery stuff went away. I'm those people maybe weren't for being in anymore. That's probably a limited number of people. Um, the change in the church definitely affected me, but I don't think it had anything to do with my decision to leave. In fact, the changes in the church for me were welcome. I loved the modernization. I loved not wearing the habit anymore. I loved being out in the world and meeting people. And as a musician, I played, we changed from just organ. I played the organ for mass. Now I was playing the guitar. Mm -hmm. And even while I was a novice, one of my duties was to go visit the sisters in the the retirement in the nursing home next door. I used to go room to room and sing with my guitar a lot of Irish songs, as you mentioned, it was originally founded by people from Ireland. And the Singing Nun was popular, a popular uh, record at the day. Sally Field and the Flying Nun was mm-hmm. popular in the day. So I do think there was a lot of romance surrounding convent life that may have affected people coming and going. Mm -hmm. And I do think that affected why fewer people entered um, as the time went on. Well, certainly, what do you think the impact of the play and the movies about nonsense uh, have have had? I mean, 
portraying nuns as kind of jolly. I mean, you you talk to some veterans of Catholic school, and I didn't go to a Catholic school. I wasn't Catholic as a young person. Uh, you know, they didn't necessarily like the nuns, but uh, in nun sense, and I've met a, nuns who are kind of fun-loving. I think the media picks up any moment that is a little more extreme one way or the other. You mentioned nonsense on the jolly side, and then an earlier movie, The Nun Story with Audrey Hepburn from the maybe 1959 or so, shows a very stern type of religious life. So I think the media tends to go from one extreme or the other, and the reality is somewhere in, in between. between. Well, Mary Lou Reed, I thank you very much for joining us. Again, her book is called The Convent Diet. She has some recipes on her website if you want to go to it, conventdiet.com. That's conventdiet.com. This has been the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore.